what is the value of a human life if you can copy that life? And I mean, philosophically, you could say, that's not me, you know, that's just a copy of me. But then how much of a difference is that if that copy has all your memories and thinks, you know, feels that it's you? I'm sitting here with Vanessa Fogg, who's written many interesting short stories. Thanks, Vanessa, for coming. Thank you. Today we're going to get into one of your stories, which is Traces of Us. What's that story really about? The world of Traces of Us, there's basically two storylines, two timelines. One is in the near future. It's a world that's pretty much our world, maybe just a few years in the future. And it focuses on two neuroscience students who are working and they're very passionate about what they do, trying to understand the human brain, various aspects of it. And they're passionate about each other as well because they're in love. And the second storyline takes place in the far, far future where the technologies that these neuroscience students dream of have actually come true. And mind uploading exists and sentient spaceships roam through the stars, roam between the stars, connecting with each other. And we don't know when this future, how far it is. It's not being told that this is 50 or 500 or 5,000 years in the future. No. Did you have any like, thought of where you think it is? Do you think, how far do you think it is? Um, no, not really. Um, if I were to be realistic, if I thought this would ever happen, I would think centuries or more, but I left it deliberately unstated. Mike, tell me about the mind uploading you created in, in Traces of Us and also what some of the problems that mind uploading creates. The inspiration for this story was actually an article in the New York Times that was published back in 2015. So the article was by a writer named Amy Harmon, and it was titled A Dying Young Woman's Hope in Cryonics in the Future. And it was a story about actually a young woman named Kim Suozzi, who as an undergraduate was majoring in neuroscience and was deeply interested in you know some of these mind-loading um I guess, speculation in neuroscience. And unfortunately, she came down with brain cancer. And it's a really tragic story, actually. And she and her boyfriend started a fundraising. Um, I'm not sure if it was Kickstarter, but it was, you know, it was some kind of fundraising campaign in the hopes of preserving her brain by um, cryobiology, in the hopes that maybe someday, if this technology ever actually advances to that point, she should she could come back in a way. And, you know, I guess the her fundraising campaign caused a lot of controversy because many people said, you know, you shouldn't be wasting your money like this. Um, it's not going to come true. But the article in the New York Times is a very thoughtful article. Um, it talks about some of the science behind this as well as focusing on the human aspect. Um, it's, a, you know, it's kind of a tragic story. And so I guess in a way, when I wrote my story, it was kind of to give a happy ending. Trace of Us focuses a lot on something called connectomics, which is the map of all the neuronal connections in the brain. And some people think that, you know, maybe if we knew all the synaptic connections in the brain, if we could map that all out, every connection, 
that would be enough to encode our memories, to encode personality and the mind. Um, most mainstream scientists, pretty much everyone else, says that could not possibly be enough. There has to be more that we would know. We would have to know, but it would probably be something required. It would be a step. And it's you know a huge area of investigation right now. There's a lot of money being poured into it. Obviously, in terms of just basic research, being able to map out all those synaptic connections would be hugely important. And it's been done in animals. Um, it's been done in tiny transparent worm called C. elegans, which was easier to do because C. elegans only has 302 neurons compared to the human brain, which has um, about 100 billion neurons estimated. So anyway, it's a huge area of investigation. And in my story, that's what the neuroscience students in the story are trying to do. They're trying to map out those connections in the human brain and try to understand how it works. And in that story, that in itself, along with other brain recording activities, is enough, is enough to resurrect a human mind. Not the actual person who would be dead, but kind of a simulation of who he or she was. But why would it be sufficient to just record? Would there be some meta layer on top of it? Or would it be that there is some ephemeral soul or something which is not part of the brain? Or what's the argument for, for having more than just the connections? Ah, because if there's, you can see just the connections between the brain, um, which people are doing, but people still don't know exactly how those connections are firing. For instance, you might know that one neuron is synapsing upon another, but you might not know the actual receptors in each, or like, you know, whether they're excitatory or... So in terms of the technology, um, the state of the technology right now, in terms of like the microscopic mapping, it wouldn't tell enough. So I guess the argument is if we only could preserve everything, which is an argument that one of the students makes in the story. It's like we actually knew every receptor in every neuron, as well as which neuron is connecting with which neuron. And if we knew, you know, how all those proteins are functioning, that maybe we would have to do, you know, that in order to actually, you know, achieve this dream. So I guess it's kind of like a technological issue. Yeah. And, but there's also a beautiful analogy to music, which I really like. So at one point in the story, one of the students, Daniel, is having an argument with his girlfriend, and he says, Kathy, you don't even understand how a single synapse works. Not really. And she says, I know, but what if we don't need the kind of molecular detail that you're working on? Maybe we don't need to know how every protein in every neuron is regulated and functions, or the exact mechanism of how it all comes together. We just need to copy it somehow, the essence of it. And then in the story, she continues, what if it's like music? You don't need to know how a violin works to replicate its sound. You don't need to know what wood it's made of or how it's strung or anything about timber or musical theory. You just need to record the sound waves. Play them back in there. It's like the violin is playing right in front of you. You don't need to know anything about the violinist. And you can do the same with any music, any sound. You just abstract and record what's essential. So she's saying that we don't actually need to understand how the human mind works to be able to resurrect it. We just have to record it somehow. And yeah, it's a beautiful analogy. And um, let me tell you that it's not my analogy. It's, I can't come up with anything that smart and elegant. And I drew that analogy from an essay by a neuroscience professor named Michael Graziano, who published it in Eon Magazine. 
um, and he was in fact he didn't come he did in fact directly draw that analogy between music and recording what's essential about a human mind. Yeah, it is a nice analogy. It's a very nice analogy. And the interesting thing is also about mind uploading. The idea here is that it's uh, and one of the general things about science fiction today is, is it feels that time is just moving faster than ever before. And I mean, there are startups and companies working about this. We can go and freeze our brains now in waiting for this to happen, or we can like hire a startup to quote unquote upload our mind. And of course, that's the interesting thing about you're writing the future as it's, as it's happening under our feet right now. Uh, and like, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, this is kind of astonishing that actually shortly after the story was published, a reader um, contacted me on Twitter to say, do you know this is happening right now? And the reader sent me a link to an article about a startup company called Nectone. So it turned out that in the spring of 2018, Nectone got embroiled in this huge controversy because it went public with an interview at um, MIT Technology Review. Nectome, the company, said that they were actually going to offer mine uploading services to the public. And basically, they were offering the same procedure that I mentioned in my story, that they would take a human being, a terminally ill human being, and while that person was still alive, pump their vasculature with fixatives that would fix their brain and that they would have to do this while the person was still alive so that, you know, decay wouldn't come in and mess things up so that every single synapse, every single protein in the brain would be fixed just as it is. And so that then that brain, that ultrastructure of other synaptic connections could be preserved and that they'd be able to preserve that brain like that for however many centuries it would take until the technology is sufficient to actually kind of resurrect an identity from that information. And so they actually, on the record, said that they were going to connect people with terminal illnesses to, quote, a heart-lung machine in order to pump its mix of scientific embalming chemicals into the big carotid arteries in their necks while they are still alive, so under general anesthesia. So that's a quote from the article in an MIT Technology Review. And the company had said that they were already consulting with lawyers familiar with California's End-of-Life Option Act, which would permit doctor-assisted suicide for terminal patients. So this article, it caused a huge uproar because the headline for the article when it ran in the MIT Technology Review was, quote, a startup is pitching a mine uploading service that is 100% fatal, since it would be fatal. And basically, every neuroscientist who was willing to be quoted on record condemned it because, I mean, obviously, this is totally, totally unethical. Um, they were promising something that cannot be promised right now. And as people pointed out, it, you know, it seems like it might tip people into physician-assisted suicide at a point when it might not be needed and they'd just be tipping them over into it quicker before this technology is, you know, is at all already. And so it was such a mess that actually MIT, which had a subcontract with this company, canceled its subcontract. And the day after MIT did that, this company backed down and said they had no plans to offer this technology to any people right now in the foreseeable future. And if you go to their website, they've taken down any language about offering this to people right now. It, it, yeah, it's really fascinating because, I mean, it is really, I think that not only is the future happening as we write it, very, very for real now. But the other thing is also that it's the history rhymes. I mean, this is, 
this feels like religion. This is promising an afterlife if I can only embalm you and put you in a pyramid 4,000, 5,000 years ago. And now it's happening again. And it's, I guess it's happened every thousand years with new claims. Now there are no gods in, involved. It's, now it's technology. Yes. And I guess, you know, um, people are desperate to believe, you know, especially someone who's seeing death right in the face. I guess some people, they can handle it with religion. And as you said, some people want or need to turn towards something else in order to be able to handle that. And so, of course, this company, I would say it's absolutely predatory what they were trying to do. And some people think that even these cryogenic companies that are freezing brains are maybe a little bit predatory because they're promising something that they can't be done. Although, I guess if you say that, you know, if they admit that, you know, we can't guarantee this, this is just, we're not promising this, but this is an option. I guess you could maybe make the ethical argument that if people really understand that. But it's interesting to also think about what the, if mind uploading and, and body brain freezing, if it's a part of the time, is it a secular wave that's bringing this forward? Are we thinking more about infinite lives now because of some, because of secularism? Or is it that we think that it's within reach? What do you think? Why do you think this is a topic of yours? Was it, why was it on your mind? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess it was on my mind because I read that article in the New York Times. And I guess that writer must have written it because, yeah, because, you know, technologically, this is what some people are reaching for these days. And I think you're onto something that, you know, um, for a lot of the world now, we're much more secular than we used to be. Um, I think that's probably much more true for the country where you're at. Um, I'm in America, and a lot of people are still very religious. But even here, I think we're not as religious as we used to be. So, yeah, I think we have to for that. I, I think that, in my view, I think all of America is religious. It's just the question of which religion. Either you choose one of the old religions or you're choosing the new, like, technical religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, yes, I, I mean Sweden. Sweden is extremely secular. It feels like we don't believe in anything, including government or technology, for some reason. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's the cold. But I think that if mind uploading works, I mean, as you said, is it is it... 500 years or is it 5,000 years? I think one interesting question is also when and if this is going to work, what do you think that the, what are the moral and ethical questions that have come about? If it works, I mean, it's not going to be the ethical question of lying to people, but what are the issues? That's huge. And um, we're actually doing some research for this podcast. I was looking at a website called the Brain Preservation Foundation website and they actually had a, they had you know an interesting discussion of some of the ethical issues too, and one of them is sustainability and affordability and accessibility, because right now, um, in this world, in this particular moment, to be able to even think of, you know, mapping all those connections, I think an estimated 150 trillion connections in the human brain and record that, that would take an enormous amount of computer processing power. And so just from a sustainably, sustainability issue, you know, could we do this without straining ecological resources? You know, how many people could we do this for? And, you know, affordability in terms of the social, social justice issue would be an issue because, you know, would this be unfair if only the very richest people 
can afford this? You know, is this unfair if, you know, only the very richest people, richest and most powerful people could access that? Would that just be creating a whole nother level of inequality amongst humanity? Yeah, and I feel like there are many ethics, I think that short, short-term ethical issues, like you said, that were just like the economics of creating this, which might be destroying the planet in many ways and anything from animal testing to energy needed. And I think that there's the second degree, which is when this suddenly becomes available at the brink of time, then one of the issues is going to be that some people can mind upload and others can't, and it's going to be a very unfair world. But then like the third step of this, that's when this suddenly is like electricity, it's everybody has it. Everybody who's born can decide if they want to upload their mind. Do you think that we're going to get into a third wave of ethical issues then or do you think that at that time it is democratized? It's okay. Everybody can up to their mind. We've figured out an efficient way to do it. It's like it's like electricity in the twenty first century. It works. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. It's it's hard for me to think about that because it's hard for me to just kind of grasp. You know, what world would that be if we can live virtually? I mean, I don't know. Have what are your thoughts on that? I think there could be all kinds of ethical issues, which I think are interesting. What if what is the value of a life if we can copy it? Uh, what is death if death is not true? Um, it would be very strange to see that. I would suddenly say, "Oh, Vanessa, should we just copy like both of you and I clone right now, and we can have a parallel conversation about cooking?" And both of us do that, and we just have a, two other of us have a conversation about cooking. Um, and of course, we could do that. It wouldn't be us, but it would be us. And I think that there are going to be all kinds, like what is infidelity in the world where you're suddenly multiple people? Um, what is transportation? What is purpose when you will live forever? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. What would purpose be? And as you said, what is the value of a human life if you can copy that life? And I mean, philosophically, you could say, that's not me. You know, that's just a copy of me. But then how much of a difference is that if that copy has all your memories and thinks, you know, feels that it's you. Yeah, and it, it could be, it could also be strange because in a sense, genetics is mind uploading, right? I mean, you get children and you try, you raise them, so they have your genome and you try to, in, by nature and nurture, you try to create copies of you. Um, and But then there are also kind of weird things that could happen with mind uploading because would there be nepotism? Would you favor clones of you to have important roles because you trust them or would you preserve and would you prefer like a diversity where you think it's better that we have multiple kinds of brain that do these tasks i think there are all kinds of strange things when suddenly things become non-unique and i guess you could ask about you know what right does your mind copy have you know obviously if it's a sentient then doesn't have its own rights its own person do you have any ownership over them yeah, and of course, and also no, another weird thing about that is, of course, that could you suddenly see slavery as a new way? Um, like I could suddenly copy a version of me and have that version to do all the horrible tasks, and I would have uh, the the me me to do all the nice things. But then the problem is, is they copy me now a slave, and is slavery allowed, or is slavery allowed if it's a copy of me? Yeah, and of course, the copy of you probably doesn't want to do all these horrible things. No, exactly. It's still me. So it still, it still has like emotions and, 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 you know, it's afraid and everything. But who would hinder me? And I think it's like we're suppressing this debate with cloning in a sense. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to think of, you know, from our stance right here, all the, 
ethical issues that we could run into. Yeah, yeah. maybe it's a good thing this is this many years in the future, but I think that is, that's one of the purposes, I think, also with, with literature. It forces our point of view to be that far off, that we suddenly see all these problems. And, and I think there's one interesting problem, problem, or not sure if it's a problem or a possibility in the novel, which is if you could upload minds, you could actually travel in time, right? You can travel in you can travel in memory. I mean, so you can, which suddenly means that why would you ever live in the now now when you can just live in a perfect version of your memory? I see. Like if you could just go back to your favorite memory and just live in that day. Yeah, and you could relive it. It would be like Groundhog Day, the movie, but the the good day. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. It goes into your question about what would be the purpose. Um, what would be the purpose of living in the real world? You know and making change in the real world if you can just play in these virtual worlds. Yeah, exactly. It's strange because they are, in a, in a sense, they're a virtual world, but somehow there's just higher stake in it. It's like a computer game, but it's actually, like, it's not only an avatar of you, it's a you-you. Um, and it might be one of the things that might be an ethical thing here, but that we might have a restriction of how many yous you can have and stuff like that. But, it, I mean, linking even more to today, in a sense, I think that we already have in some way of mind uploading. I think that if we just compare 500 years ago to today, if somebody wanted to quote unquote upload their mind technologically 500 years ago, they wrote a book. And today, every single individual is tweeting and Facebooking and you know putting stuff on YouTube and kind of quote unquote uploading their minds. Do you think that we already have these problems today? Yeah, I mean, it's an, in a sense... Yeah, and it's actually that's kind of a nice way of looking at it, actually, that all of us can leave these records behind, that people can remember us by, these traces of us, in a sense. Um, as you said, it used to be that, you know, you wrote letters, diaries, a book, and that was the trace that you left of yourself, of your personality and your thoughts and your mind for future generations. And now, you know, their photographs, your your tweets, if you are on Twitter, your YouTube videos, or, um, you know, and people have much more access to that now and do it much more prolifically. So there's much more of that kind of a traces of you that you're leaving behind. But in that sense, also time becomes harder to figure out. Like, I mean, there's somebody who could today find out that the artist formerly known as Prince, um, and actually, yeah, for two reasons now formerly known as Prince, that they can wake up one day and listen to lots of his work and think they're amazing and see interviews and believe that Prince is alive and then figure out that he's not. But the question is, are they actually living a strange story? I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I can wake up in the morning and ask myself, is David Bowie alive? And I don't actually have, like in a strange way, David Bowie might be or not, might, might not be alive. I can still see him on YouTube. I can still listen to interviews. I can still listen to the music. But it's unsure if he's actually in the same time as I am. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's actually something beautiful about art, that David Bowie can keep existing this kind of timeless way now because we have, we have the technology for these recordings. We can see him and we can listen to his music still, no matter how far in the future we are, as long as we retain that technology, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, in a sense, he is mind uploaded. I mean, in a strange way, I think that, especially David Bowie, who's shown so many like <laughs> versions of himself, we have a lot of versions of David Bowie. And I think it's interesting because I think you could wake up random people and ask them if Madonna is alive, and I think half of them would say the wrong answer. <laughs> um, 
I mean, there's so many people who didn't die in a spectacular death, like Michael Jackson, but who we actually don't know if they're alive. We might listen to their works, we might view their things, and suddenly they release a child children book, and we go, "What is that person still around?" Yeah, yeah, I do that all the time. I'm like, oh, is that person still alive? I don't know, but um, yeah, in a sense, it's kind of beautiful that they can actually that they can, you know. I mean, that's a promise of art in a way to be immortal. Um, the difference from the technology and in the story, of course, is that they may seem alive to other people, but they no longer have consciousness. Whereas in you know the promise of the story is that the copies of the two characters actually continue to have a kind of consciousness and can go forward consciously and make decisions for themselves. Yeah, the question is though is like uh, because in a sense. I don't know. In the story, is it really clear that the that that the does like does the guy know if she is there, or is this is this just a quote unquote memory, like like a Madonna, like a David Bowie, like I mean, is this person really there, or is this just a projection of her that he now feels? Uh, and I think that sometimes I can ask myself that about the real world. When I interact with people on Twitter, I don't know if this is a recording of a person that's interacting with me or if this is a real person. That's right. Is this a bot? Is this a real person? And sometimes, yeah. I mean, philosophically, those, that's that philosophical question that you can never really know that another person is, in a sense, what another person's mind is. Are they really there? Are you inter- in a sense. No, no, exactly. I mean, even people around you who can sit around you and stare at their mobile phone, they might not be physically and mentally, they might physically be present, but they might mentally not be present. They might do something else. Yeah. And I think that in that sense, the question is, is their mind now uploaded and somewhere else, mm-hmm. but their body happens to be just in front of you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do, you find, what do you feel like, if you think about, do you think that there are things that we should think about today, actively, about this future? Like, do you think that today people should think about laws and rules and regulations and because this might happen or this will happen? Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, what we've been, been discussing about, about, you know, slavery of um, copied minds, that's, that's so far in the future. If it ever happens, but it's, it's hard for me to think about it in any way other than in a science fiction way. And let me tell you, you've given me some great ideas for, like, science fiction ideas, by the way. Um, <laughs> Um, in terms of the near future, then, um, yeah, the whole issue with Nectome, I think, really, you know, spurred a call for, you know, ethical oversight of this kind of technology, but ethical oversight in a more limited kind of near future way, as we discussed before, that, you know, before anything like this could ever come forward, um, be offered to the public, you know, ethicists, legal experts would definitely have to get involved as well as scientists, you know, say, you know, is this something, a legitimate offering? And then, you know, the issues of affordability and accessibility and sustainability in terms of like the slavery of copied minds or the independence and human rights of copied minds. I don't know. That's, that's so far in the future that it's hard for me to think about, except for in a science fiction type of way. That's a good point. I mean, I think that's one one question, one last question I have for you is, do you think that mind uploading essentially would be a technology for the people who has passed away or the, the people who are still around? Do you think that we would like to upload minds to preserve people we love or to stay alive indefinitely? Um, well, that's a good question too. Who is it for? Um, in my story, it, it could be for both. The person who once 
to keep interacting with the person who passed away, but the person who biologically passed away can continue mentally as well. Certainly I could see it going that it could work for both people. But you can absolutely see, like I can see parents in, in 5,000 years tell their teenage daughter, like you just stop have to try to like be in love with that uploaded mind. That person does not exist. That person is a copy of a person who died long ago. Can you please interact with real boys or girls out there in real life? And, and, and your teenage girl says, what do you mean, mom? What, this is a real person. Just because this person doesn't have a body doesn't mean it's not a real person. Yeah, I can see that, I guess. Although, I mean, bodies certainly have advantages that, you know, computer simulations don't. <laughs> that's true. Well, minds have other, other, I think that I like minds a lot, but it's true. Bodies do have, do have actual good purposes as well. Yeah. You can, it's easier to get a hug from a body. Well, thank you very much for the interview, Vanessa. This has been super interesting. I, it was great hearing your thoughts about this. Yeah. Thank you. This is a lot of fun and you've given me some new ideas. <laughs>